This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www.gvsu.edu slash hc. Welcome to the premiere Lunch and Learn. I'm Gleaves Whitney, your host. During our quarantine, we may not be able to journey outside our homes, but that should not stop us from journeying outside our minds. Today, my guest is Winston Elliott III, and together Winston and I will be journeying to the world of Homer and the Odyssey, because that epic poem has a lot to say about our current crisis, about being home, about family trying to reach home, about being threatened by a plague even while at home. My good friend Winston is the president of the Free Enterprise Institute and editor-in-chief of the Imaginative Conservative, based in Houston. He is also a visiting professor of liberal arts at Houston Baptist University. Our format begins with a 30-minute conversation followed by questions from our viewers. Our goal is not to go longer than 45 minutes, so feel free to begin sending your questions as they come up using the Zoom toolbar to do so. Well, Winston, I'm so happy that you're able to join me to talk about, I think, one of your favorite books ever, The Odyssey. Tell us how you became familiar with The Odyssey. Well, first of all, I want to say you mentioned our quarantine. In case you hear background noises, as part of the quarantine, which makes perfect sense, my lawnman is outside cutting the grass at this exact moment. So we have this quarantine where lawnmen and construction workers and drive-through uh, uh, food places are still working. So somehow you and I are going to have to understand that. But you may hear a little lawn noise because I hear it right now. Um, yeah, I, I did not have... Uh, kind of a great book to classical education. Um, I really went to a normal public school and we read a lot of textbooks. Um, textbooks, the definition of a textbook is a book that not, makes you never want to read a book again. Um, and I read many of those books, but I managed to pick up on reading as a habit, even though in my household that wasn't common. Um, I remember the first book I read that was important to me was The Godfather. Uh, I read that in elementary school. Uh, that is an Odyssean tale. We can talk about that later. It is definitely inspired by Homer. Um, later in high school, I was exposed by my ninth grade, eighth and ninth grade English teacher to the books of Alan Drury, uh, Advise a Consent, Come Nineveh, Come Tired, uh, a series of political novels, mostly focusing on America's concern about uh, communism. And those books made me get involved in politics. And by 16, I was running my first political campaign. But still, I hadn't found that the intellectual life was actually more human than any other part of the life that I had ever uh, participated in. Later, I was had a business career, and I, after I sold that company, I came to the Imagine. I started the Imagine Conservative. I started running the Free Enterprise Institute, and I had a, a marvelous essay that I found uh, by a woman by the name of Eva Brand. And Eva was writing about the imagination. I didn't know Eva. It turns out she is a tutor at St. John's. She's been a tutor at St. John's since 1957. Um, so she is a woman of mature years. Um, but she had written a wonderful book called Homeric Moments. I'm going to hold this up because I think everyone, everyone should buy this book. Can you see that? That's Homeric Moments. It's readily available uh, uh, from we Paul can. Books. And uh, you can get it on Amazon now. Of course, not the next two days because they're delaying everything, but it's a wonderful book. And when I started reading her book on Homeric Moments, I realized 
that I only was barely familiar with the Odyssey. I was barely familiar with Homer. I could, was a person who read hundreds of books, but I had not read what it turns out is the fountain, the foundation of all Western literature is Homer. It is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And until I read Eva's Homeric Moments, I didn't know that. The second thing I didn't know is reading the Odyssey is a joy. It is a gift. And I've written one of my favorite essays of my own, if I may have one, uh, is Homer's Odyssey is a gift. And in that I quote Eva, and it's from her book, Homeric Moments, where she said, reading Homer's poems is one of the purest, most inexhaustible pleasures life has to offer. And it's a secret somewhat too well kept in our time. Well, I started immediately rereading the Odyssey, really reading it for the first time. But in many ways, every time we reread a great book, a foundational book, it is for the first time because we are a different person every time we read it. If you read it as in high school or as a homeschooler nowadays, um, it's not the same book as when you read it as a young adult and you're beginning love and work and life outside of your parents' home. It's not the same book as when you read it when you have children and a wife and you're uh, out struggling in the world of work and wondering how to meet your purpose. It is a totally different book when you're 60 and, about, and saying, what do I do with the rest of my life? Am I mature? Am I wise? It is a book that never stops giving. So I like the Odyssey a great deal. <laughs> you sure do. Well, I'm sure intrigued by what you just said. You said something about the Godfather, and I'd really like to hear your thoughts about connecting something that very few Americans are really familiar with, the epic poem of Homer's, with movies and uh, sequels that the American public probably is very familiar with, the Godfather. What's the connection? Well, I know, okay, first off, I would say I would not recommend letting your fifth or sixth grader read The Godfather. <laughs> um, my parents weren't readers and were totally unaware uh, that there were many things in that book that I should not have been uh, exposed to. But be that as it may, I was. Um, it's an incredible story. Michael Corleone, the son of The Godfather, is Telemachus. He is the Telemachus, the young son of a king in the Odyssey. His father goes off, he's shot, he's in the hospital. Suddenly, the son has to act as an adult. He has to act as a princeling in what is a kingdom of the Godfather's organization. The Godfather himself, uh, Don Corleone, is a man who killed the man who killed his father and then had to leave Italy, escaping uh, uh, secretly of the gang who had, the gang that who, who I killed his father, he killed the head of the gang. So he had to leave Sicily in order to go to America where he starts an olive oil company that becomes essentially the basis of the business of the Godfather and for that family for generations. Generations of life, generations of pain, generations of violence continue from the time the, the Godfather, Don Corleone, kills his father's killer to the time that Michael Corleone kills the father, kills the killer of his father. That's a story. That is a Western piece of literature that's been made into wonderful movies. That's uh, been an important book, at least when I was uh, uh, in fifth and sixth grade, that was a long time ago. Um, that's one of the stories that shows us that the Odyssey, Homer, is a foundation of Western literature, but it's one of many. 
fascinating, these links between the Odyssey and later literature, movies. Of course, The Godfather is a great novel. Well, tell us a little bit more about Eva Brand's love affair with Homer and all that she has written about the Odyssey and what you've learned. And in particular, Winston, I'm interested in learning more about reconciling something that's glaring. We, you and I have talked about this before, but it's, it's reconciling the fact that Odysseus is one of the wiliest people in all of literature. He's a liar. He's a great liar. And yet he's also a character for whom we feel a lot of sympathy. We, we want to identify with him. How do you reconcile that? <laughs> well, you know, I, our mutual friend, Eva Brand, who I mentioned earlier, uh, is 91. She turned 91 in January. Still writing a book a month, still, still teaching classes at St. John's. Um, she had once, I once did an introduction for her where I said that uh, Eva, who was Jewish from Germany, was on the last train allowed out of Hitler's Germany uh, by the Nazis with Jews on it. Uh, she came to America, uh, came to Brooklyn. Her family came to live in Brooklyn, of all places. But she escaped, I say, she escaped an army administration of book burners, came to Brooklyn, established a new life that became the focus of the rest of her life, became the great books. So she escaped the great book. She escaped the book burners on what I would call uh, a long, uh, long black ship in a dark wine sea. She escaped to America and found basically what is the epitome of, uh, of great books and liberal learning and love of the Greeks and love of Homer at St. John's. And she said, I was like a fish in water. I was wonderfully, joyfully happy from the moment I've landed there. And she's been there teaching as a tutor at St. John's since 1957. I could just hear Eva saying that. That's wonderful. Oh, yes. And she would always, and she would tell me, I would, when I gave an introduction, I once said to her, uh, said that uh, I'm pretty sure Eva's never been married um, and, does, and doesn't have family of her own. Um, and I, I once said, well, that's because uh, she was always in love with Odysseus and never could uh, uh, love anyone else. And she said, that's exactly true. He is the love of my life and the greatest liar in the world. Okay, reconcile that for us. How do I reconcile that? In, <laughs> huma in humanity, it's simple. We are full of sin and goodness. We are full of joy and sadness. We are full of anger and love. We, as humans, are fragments that come together in a unity that creates the fullness of who we are. That's the beauty of Homer's poems, of the Iliad, and, and for me, particularly the Odyssey, because it shows the unity, the fullness, the completeness of the human condition. Look, we don't get to win all the time. We're currently in a situation where we, many of us are, are traumatized to a degree. We've lost our jobs. We're having to stay home. We can't go see our friends. Perhaps elderly people can't have their kids or grandkids come visit. This is a traumatic time, and yet it's part of the human condition to go through disease and war and pestilence and, and times of, of plenty and times of very little, times of where we eat too much. I mean, we, we're, when it's a sign of prosperity to be rotund because we are accomplished and successful, and when it is a time when to be thin is to be human, 
because the fates, nature, God, the gods, Zeus has created a, na a natural condition that challenges us, that makes us hard. I don't know if you can hear my lawnmower, I think it's right behind my house. Um, so this is the time when we are reminded that we, like King Canute, cannot stop the tide. We don't stop the waves of life. So death comes to us all. Sickness often comes to most of us. Loss and joy come to us. But if we can embrace them all, if we can accept them all, if we can appreciate them all, we'll have a fuller life and we'll also find what I think is the fullness in humanity's story, in Odysseus's story, in Eva Brand's story. Uh, what an amazing story. You escape the Nazis as a child. You're on the last train out. And then you spend the next 60 years helping young Americans learn about the greatest books and greatest thoughts and authors of Western tradition. What an amazing story. It is an amazing story, and she teaches so many of the wonderful books of our heritage and gives them life and, and inspires students to keep reading them for the rest of their lives. And Winston, tell us more about the Odyssey and home. A lot of people are stuck at home right now, or they're family members who are separated because of COVID-19 who are trying to reach home. Well, the Odyssey says a whole lot about home. What, is, yeah, what does Homer say about home? The first thing it says about home is that our, the main character, right, we, we should talk about what an Odyssey is. The Odyssey is the story of the adventures of Odysseus. The big O Odyssey is the story of Odysseus. But we each have our own Odyssey. We each have an adventure that we're on. We, we each are experiencing our small O Odyssey, our adventure in life where we go out and, and mix with spirit and mind uh, and body and, uh, in life in a way that we want to control, okay? We want to use our conveniences, our internet, our delivery services, our takeout food. We want to control. And what have we been reminded of right now? We, like Odysseus, are not in control. When he is blown, uh, when his ship is blown, he is within sight when he, okay, he's been at Troy for, for uh, 10 years fighting the war. His ship leaves Troy, his ships leave Troy with all his men from Ithaca. They're going back to Ithaca. They see the shore. And what happens? Because of the error of the greed of his men, they open this bag of winds that he has, that he's been given as a gift, that helps, is supposed to help him get home. But they open it for the wrong reason, out of greed, and drive him away from home for the next nine years. Okay, we have been driven into our homes. But of course, for many of us, our homes are only houses. For many of us, our homes, especially men who have a tendency to do this over the years, our homes are our offices. Our houses are what we visit. So now suddenly we're saying, I have to be in my home. Is it a home? We've had a 25% increase in domestic violent reports uh, in many cities across the country over mm. the last two weeks. We've had a 300% increase in calls to suicide hotlines. Now, a lot of that has to do with fear of getting sick. Much of it has to do with true loss and anticipated loss of jobs and businesses and livelihoods. And that is sad and desperate. But it's so sad and desperate that I'm home self-medicating or feeling bad for myself. And that increases the chance that either will do harm to myself or to others. It turns out 
we're fearful for when we're away from home, that we won't get to be home. And we're fearful when we're home, that we won't get to leave. Maybe perhaps what we ought to do is embrace the human condition that says, when I'm home, I'm home and find the joy and the peace there. And when I'm at work, I'm at work and I can find joy and peace there because it turns out it's within us, not outside us. You know, the Odyssey is a book that, because it is so old and it's in a different, it was composed in a, a very different language and because it's often foisted upon students who aren't really ready to read it when it is, you know, a lot of people find the, the idea of approaching the Odyssey intimidating. How do you advise people, say, who are adults now, who've gone through college, and they want to read this book. They're inspired by what you're saying, what Eva Brand has written, and what other people have said. How do you advise that they approach the Odyssey for the uh, first time? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, our friend Eva also says, I'm going to stop quoting her in a minute because she wouldn't like it if I quoted her the whole time. Um, yeah, but she says, often people uh, read no books. Sometimes they read good books and often they avoid hard books. Well, what a wonderful opportunity. It turns out that the Odyssey in particular, I would say, is not only a good book, it's a great book and it's a pleasure. It is a pleasure to read it as a great story. My goodness, there's a man who fights monsters and a cyclops and he's captured by a witch and he lives with a goddess who wants him for nothing but sleeping with every night, which, you know, is another question entirely. But this is this is an interesting story. Let's talk about coming of age. We talked earlier about Michael Corleone coming of age when his father, the Don, is shot. Michael has to take over the family, takes over the gang, he takes over the business. Well, Telemachus is left behind uh, as a child. This is Odysseus's son. He's left behind in the kingdom because his father goes off unanticipatedly for, turns out, 20 years. Well, Telemachus grows up without his father, but he must come of age. We have a coming of age story. Well, we all love coming of age stories. Americans and, and Westerners have been reading coming of age stories uh, for as long as we've been reading novels. It's a poem. It's an incredible novel. It's an amazing story of life. There are pirates. There are sea monsters. Uh, there's a visit to the dead. Um, there's uh, uh, great storms. There's uh, unruly crews. There's mutiny on the bounty, for gosh sakes. Um, all of the Western novels that we love, in some way, trace their origin to Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey. If we recognize what? that, we can I'm sorry. enjoy it. We can just, and, for, and I would say that first of all, I'm not, I don't claim to, I'm not an academic expert on the book. I give talks on the books, I've written some things on the book. I'm not like Eva, I'm not an expert. She is. I'm an amateur and in the truest form. I love the book. I love to read it. It's inspiring. It's fun. I've read it many times. I've listened to it many times. There are audible versions that are wonderful. Um, Dan Stevens, who was the star of Downton Abbey, one of the stars of Downton Abbey, does an incredible job of reading uh, Robert Fitzgerald's translation, which I have here in the hardback, Everyman uh, copy, but there's also a mass uh, paperback of Fitz, Robert Fitzgerald's translation uh, that's only like nine or ten dollars. Okay, I would just say, if everyone's listening, if people are listening to us saying, I haven't read that in a long time, 
really don't remember it. I had to do it for class. Okay, anytime a book is assigned for class, almost invariably, we remember it painfully. That's sad, but true. But the true, but the sad part is, there are also great books that if we read them without the burden of, I have to write a paper on it, take an exam on it, and memorize these names, I don't worry about any of that. I tell my students when we do, do the Odyssey, and mostly it's freshmen, okay, first off, I'm gonna mispronounce every Greek name in this book. Secondly, I'm gonna get some of them out of order. And thirdly, I'm gonna forget the important names of important characters of time. But why? Because I'm so enthralled with the story, the details kind of like slide by me at times. So don't worry about it, enjoy the story. If you want help to it, get a book like Homeric Monuments. This is a great collection of essays that can be read any one at a time. They don't have to be read in order. They don't have to be with it. Uh, okay, I'm gonna do one more pitch here. I recently read, just a, a couple weeks ago, uh, what I think is a wonderful book for young adults. And this is Argos, the story of Odysseus, yes. as told by his loyal dog. And this is by Ralph Hardy, came out in like 2006. I never read it until a couple weeks ago. It is a, a book for young adults, available from Amazon, Kindle, whatever. Um, and it tells, the, it tells all the most important stories in the Odyssey, in Homer's poem, but it tells them through the eyes of his loving, loyal dog, Argos. Oh, doesn't that get your heart? Yes, it does. And you saying that. Because yeah. you and I love dogs. We have dogs. Yes. Well, it, look, Argos is an incredible character. If you've loved a dog, you feel for Argos in this story. Because for 20 years, his master leaves him. And for that 20 years, he's loyal. And he's desperate to see his master. And when he finally sees him, he only gets to wag his tail and show recognition. And then he passes away. Because he's a 20-year-old dog. Okay, what about Penelope? What about Odysseus's wife? She's incredibly faithful, loyal. She's loving, and, and she fights off suitors who are trying to take Odysseus's kingdom from him since he's been gone for 20 years. She fights them off for years with stead, a steadfast heart and a wily mind, and she misleads the, the suitors just like Odysseus misleads uh, almost everybody he comes in contact with. The most wonderful heartfelt, loving liar in the world. <laughs> he is <he's laughs> the, uh, the king of lies and the king of life and clever in mostly in the right times and sometimes in the wrong times. I once had a friend of mine who's, uh, someone came to me and said, well, you know, your friend steals. And I said, yes, I know. They said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I, I said, well, I've talked to him about it. I just can't. He won't stop. And he said, well, you know, but he's your friend. I said, oh yeah, he's my friend who steals. I, I'm not gonna lose a friend just because he's got a flaw. He's, he's got a sin. My gosh, if I did that, no one would be my friend, okay? <laughs> so in this way, Odysseus has taken his flaw, his wiliness, his ability to lie at the drop of a hat, combined it with all his strengths and made it, in the end, a victory. Although a victory where from all the men he brings with him to Troy, all the men who leave Troy with him after the victory of Troy to come home, none of them make it home except him. That makes Now, Winston, I have a question to ask you about that. Okay. Sometimes when I mention the Odyssey to our student leadership fellows at the Cook Leadership Academy, I will say something about the fact that he is the only one who makes it all the way back to his palace in Ithaca, that all the other 
men who started the journey with him are lost. Is that a failure of leadership? At times, yes. Uh, in the very, the very first instance that I mentioned, uh, where they're within sight of Ithaca, um, but he has taken a nap on his ship. He's told his men, whatever you do, don't touch this bag of wind that is on the deck. Uh, I won't take the time to explain the entire thing. But he falls asleep, and the men, feeling like he might be misleading them, that it might be wealth that they don't get to take advantage of, and he does, open the bag. When they open the bag, it blows the ship off course, and they all spend the next nine years not being home. And actually, it is the death of the entire crew. They don't know it yet, but that leads to the death of the entire crew except for him. Is that a failure of leadership? Yes. Why didn't he put a, his, his number one man next to that bag with a sword and say, whatever you do, I'm taking a nap, but stop him. Don't let him open this bag. It'll ruin our lives. On the other hand, he tells his men multiple times, whatever you do, don't eat the sun god's uh, cattle. We've been told if we eat the sun god's cattle, we will be destroyed. He goes off to pray, comes back, they're eating the sun god's cattle. So the fact that they don't listen has something to do with it. But then we have to go back to the coronavirus. We have to go back to faith. We have to go back to what the gods bring us. The gods brought him storms and sea monsters and a cyclops and a witch who bewitches him for a year, and, and a nymph, a goddess nymph, who cap, captures him, literally holds him as her sex slave on an island for seven years. Now, is that bad leadership? Or is that the fates? Is that the thing that, that God has allowed to happen? Or then in his case, a goddess has chosen him, and he doesn't have a choice. It turns out, you and I don't have a choice about the coronavirus. It's here. And since you and I aren't either president or experts in uh, medical uh, infectious diseases, we're living with the results of this coronavirus. We're living with lockdowns and layoffs and maybe lowered donations or lowered a business income. All of the, our listeners are facing that in different ways. That was not our choice. How we think about it, how we incorporate it into our lives, how we respond, how we respond to those around us who are suffering through it. Can we help them? Can we be more patient with them? Why? Because pestilence and war and pandemics and loss and destruction has always been a part of the human condition, just as much as love, joy, prosperity, creativity, and innovation have been part of the human experience. And they come together like two hands and, and bring our arms together and enfold us because that is who we are. We are human. And we want to live. We are modern Americans. I have cable. I have internet. I have my Kindle. Uh, I have a car. I have air conditioning. I have heat. I have groceries that can be delivered if I want. Even in the pandemic, Sunday night, they deliver groceries to our house. Okay. Why? Why do we do all that? Well, partly because it's convenient, but partly because like King Canute, we're pushing back the wave of what is life. We don't want, don't let life in the raw touch us. We're not ready for it, it's too hard. But it turns out it is already touching us and our hands can't hold back the waves. And we can't hold back even with all our technology, all of our medical genius, all of our wealth in this country, we can't hold back the waves. 
we can see them coming. We can, in the times when the waves are rolling upon us, we can still say, I'm not the first, I'm not the last who will experience the wave that is life. Beautifully put. We do have some questions that are rolling in now, Winston. Let me share with you one question that's come in. Okay. Well, one question came in and said, don't forget Penelope, please. Uh -huh. You've already addressed Penelope, so that's, that's good. Well, I have to, um, let, me, let me, I will yeah. in a second because. She, she's a great woman. For 20 I mean, she's, years. She's one of the greatest women in all literature. Yeah. For 20 years, Penelope is faithful and brilliant in a world where women don't have power. And a, and a woman, and she's the wife of a powerful man who has been gone much longer than anyone anticipated. And oh, by the way, there's no texting, there's no FaceTime, there's no video, there's no, there's no even letters. She has literally not heard from him in 20 years. But in that, she still remains absolutely faithful. And she is as wily as her husband in fending off uh, the suitors and their, and their desires for her and, his, and their desires for his kingdom. Uh, I happen to say, I found my Penelope. So in my life, I know who's faithful and who will be there in the storms, in the attacks. Penelope will be there. Well, that's an amazing gift. That's just another one of those mysterious gifts that come from we know not where, that we have to accept. And we joyfully should accept it. Here, here. <laughs> Here's another question that we have. I came by the Odyssey after reading Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, in high school. Are you a fan of this Victorian version, Odysseus, as an old man making a new start? Is it not too late to seek a newer world? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I, am, uh, I am a fan. I must admit I'm a fan of almost any later work that has great respect and reference uh, to Homer's work because it will bring people back to Homer. Um, and that poem, I think, does that. It is a reminder of that. As a matter of fact, I bought one of the books behind me, I won't try to grab it, is uh, 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 Pope's uh, Homer, Pope's Odyssey and Iliad. Um, and that's what really, in the case of Tennyson, he's writing about is Pope's Homer in a way, it, it's, it's that translation. And that's what we have now for most of us, we're not reading this in the original classical Greek. Even my friend Eva Brand, who has translated many of uh, Plato's dialogues uh, from the original Greek, when I asked her, well, you must read uh, uh, Homer in the Greek and you love it so much, she said, oh no, I read, you know, I read uh, Lattimore normally. Um, so Lattimore and Fitzgerald and Pope and uh, 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 Fagels, uh, in my case, I would definitively recommend, and I always tell people to start if they've never read it before, especially, uh, to start with Fitzgerald, Robert Fitzgerald, who was a great poet at uh, Harvard, who translated this work. Um, this is an interesting story. He translated this, translate this work. Why? Because he had a lot of kids, and he was a professor at Harvard, and he couldn't afford anyone to help take care of his kids. So he got a grant to live in Italy, where, where having a nanny was cheap, and it didn't have a lot of money, but the grant allowed was for him to translate the Odyssey. So he spent the next six years translating the Odyssey and the Iliad. He'd never been to Greece. The first time he'd been to Greece, and I had I want to I want to read this one thing to you. The first time he'd been to Greece, he said, 
that. Let me wait. I'll find it. I have the right one somewhere. Oh, here it is. Uh, oh yeah. Anyway, he's he's in the he's the first time he's in Greece, and he keeps he's saying, "I'm walking around Greece, and I don't know how to um, talk to people because I don't speak modern Greek." He translates classical Greek. He doesn't know modern Greek. And people there don't speak classical Greek. And he has a little French, and he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the town where the Phaeacians, if you know the story, leave uh, uh, Odysseus when he finally gets back to Ithaca. And, he's, and he goes to that place, and now it's a little fishing village. And he says no one speaks English. And he's feeling kind of lonely and in a way lamenting that he wanted to feel uh, Odysseus. But it's hard because he's feeling lonely and cut off because no one speaks English. And he said, suddenly an old Greek man in a t-shirt came up to him, spoke to him in perfect Oxonian English. And he said, we say that he never died. <laughs> we say that he sometimes appears as a stranger or as a sailor. And yet we know he never died. And the man turns and walks away. And Fitzgerald said, how did this person know that that's why I was there? How did he know I spoke English? Why did he speak English? And how did he know that he didn't have to even say Odysseus's name in order to tell me we say he never died? Do you know that in classical Greece, for many years, there was a cult of Odysseus, statues of Odysseus, uh, worshiping of Odysseus. I think that tells us a lot about the importance of the story, both then and now. That story you just told about Fitzgerald in Greece almost sounds like Jesus in the upstairs room. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. almost supernatural. Yeah. Uh, we, I We've got another question coming in, Jason. Oh, good. Uh, from Jason Duncan. He's a history professor and good friend of ours. He's from Aquinas College. Gleaves and Winston, thank you for providing this webinar today. Very interesting. Here's a question for Winston. Do you think that classical works such as the Odyssey are enjoying another renaissance in recent decades? I really wish my formal education had included the Odyssey and similar works, but I am glad to know that my son's education will. Best wishes. It's very interesting, Cleves. Um, because of the classical homeschool moves, movement and the classical charter school movements, more kids are reading the classics than I think read them when I was uh, in school, uh, elementary and middle school in the 60s and 70s. Um, so I think uh, what Eva says is actually more people reading Homer now than ever heard Homer or read him in his lifetime or in the hundreds of years after his death, which some we we estimate he was writing or speaking his poems somewhere between 1200 and 800 BC is the general conception. But we don't know. We don't even know if Homer was one person. But as Eva says, the most important, the wonderful thing about not knowing much about actually about Homer the poet is that we can concentrate on the poems. And the poems are the Odyssey and the Iliad. I do think that there's a movement at the classical school level, and that's wonderful. On the other hand, I will tell you, I spoke last year at my alma mater undergraduate in Washington College up in uh, Maryland. Wonderful group of students. Uh, I spoke to freshmen, sophomore, and senior classes. I was there to essentially tell the story I'm telling you today, why the Odyssey is so important. I realized in the middle of the second class that I was telling them all about how Fitzgerald translated the Odyssey, how Schliemann found Troy, how Eva Brand escaped the Nazis to write and teach about the Odyssey. 
uh, and Homer and the greats. And half the way through the class, I realized and asked them, none of them had ever read it. They were at a liberal arts college. They're, they're in an introduction to political philosophy class. None of them had read it, and there were no classes. When I looked at the literature offerings for the college, there were no classes on the, on the classical Greek literature. Now, that is sad. So I think what we can do, what we can do as adults, what we can do is, uh, for our, uh, if our kids are still young enough, we can offer them this story. I have sent many, many copies of the eight or nine dollar paperback version of Robert Fitzgerald's translation of the Odyssey. I've sent out many copies of Eva Brandt's Homeric Moments. Um, again, Amazon has them. And now, for people with young kids, I am going to be sending out Argos, the story of Odyssey as told by his faithful dog. Okay. Why? I'm looking forward to reading that one, dude. It, it is, I actually sent it to Eva yesterday. Uh, she got it yesterday. And of course, she's been teaching it since 50, 1957. And she's a Yale PhD in archaeology and did archaeological work in uh, Greece. But I, so I sent her this young adult. It's a young adult literature book. And she said, I said, I know it's a little below your reading level, but I thought you'd just be fascinated to see it. And she said, well, you know, Winston, it's for... Uh, young adults age 10 to 18. And that's, that is my mental age. So it's perfect. So it turns out, like Eva, I don't believe it. My mental age must be close to this because when I read it last week, I enjoyed the heck out of it. Well, we have a question from somebody who would be very interested to hear that about the novel Argos because Greg Dykhouse is a humanities teacher at Black River Public School in Holland, Michigan. And he's a great classicist and, and humanist in his own right. He asks this question. Journey is an undertaking that we can understand and experience rather easily. However, not all journeys are the same or equally worthy. Are there particular elements that may make some journeys more worthy or virtuous than others? And how do you distinguish between a, a worthy journey and a less than worthy journey? Thank you, Greg, for that. Thanks. Uh, that I would think of it this way. All journeys are worthy because they're human. Some are more fun or pleasurable or, or positive or fruitful than others. Some involve more pain. Uh, I happen to know a lot of friends of mine who uh, grew up in difficult family situations. And so their journey as youth uh, was very painful and yet it can still be fruitful as an adult to look back and say, what did I learn from that? Uh, well, where was the humanity in that? And if there was someone who was difficult in my life, you know, a sibling, a parent, a grandparent, why, why were they so difficult? And most people don't go, I can't wait to make other people around me miserable. That's not a conscious thought. And yet we sometimes deal with people who we, who we think as they are thinking consciously. I'll be evil today, I'll be bad today, I'll make my kids, my wife, my spouse, uh, my students un unhappy today. But that's not normally the case. Normally, our humanity has been broken, fragmented, uh, stunted. But that doesn't mean the journey is unworthy. It means that we have to overcome the difficulty. My gosh, poor Odysseus. He spends 20 years gone from home. That wasn't the plan. 
He spent seven years on an island with a beautiful nymph who wanted to bed him every night. There's something to be said for that, I guess. But on the other hand, he wanted to be home with his wife and his son and his kingdom, in spite of the fact that she was a beautiful nymph. Then he's held captive by a witch. Circe is giving him a wonderful life. And let us not forget, when they visit the land of the Lotus Eaters, uh, they're all doing Colorado gummies, I guess. Um, those people, they have numbed themselves. And he's, he and part of his crew are almost captured by the idea of numbing ourselves to life. They're taking the soma of the brave new world. They're saying, life is too difficult. Journeys are too painful. Let's numb ourselves so the journeys no longer pain us. But the problem is when we journeys no longer pain us, we no longer have journeys to grow from. We must have journeys to grow from. Be they glorious or painful, joyful or sorrowful. The journeys are where we grow from. They're where we learn from. Very good. Well, you know, Winston, I think that the Odyssey speaks to so many people in this time. This would be a great book to, an epic poem to tackle while you are homebound by these stay-in-place orders that are all over the United States right now. Uh, you've recommended good translations. You've recommended a good audio version, uh, good book versions. You've recommended some good books by Eva Brand and others, Fitzgerald, that talk about the Odyssey. Of all the things that you have read in the Odyssey and that you've read about the Odyssey. What are you going to read before you go to bed tonight? Um, I've been rereading uh, the poem itself, the Fitzgerald translation. Now, you might say it's kind of odd because I've, I've read it many times. I've listened to it uh, in the audio version, uh, gosh, probably 100 times or 200 times. Um, and yet, depending on where I am in life, what's happening to us right now, I see it differently. I am struck by, wait a minute, how could I have read this so many times? And I don't remember that. I don't remember this character. I don't remember that moment. I don't remember that hesitation on Telemachus uh, at that very second. So I am going to go back to that story. Um, on the other hand, I will admit this is for another interview, another day, if you want to have it. I can't stop reading Socrates. I've been reading the Carmodies. One, one fun essay, if you, if you like Socrates and you, and you want to relate it uh, to Homer and to Homer's work as a poet, read the Ion. The Ion, uh, as, as, a, as, a journal, as a dialogue of uh, Plato, is where he's talking to a rhapsodist, someone who spends his whole career traveling Greece, literally telling the entire story of the Odyssey from memory. He performs it. And he says, I know everything there is about life. I could be a general. I could be a captain of a ship. And why? Because I know the Odyssey. And what, ha what does Socrates begin to do? He begins to test him with questions. And he finally says, would you really be a greater general than Alcibiades? Would you really be a captain, better captain of a ship than a man who's captain to ships and you never have? And Ion says, yes, because I have read Homer. I know the Odyssey. What a wonderful dialogue. And we should be reading Socrates right now. We have, for many of us, and I understand we have our Netflix Soma. I like Netflix. We have our iTunes Soma. 
we have our DVDs, we have TV shows, we have everything we can, and then we can self-medicate and not think about anything that's troubling us, because there's so many troubles in the world right now that people are suffering from. But what we also have the opportunity to is to spend our time with Shakespeare, and to spend our time with Socrates, and to spend our time with Homer. If you told me, Glaze, right now, Winston, the end of the world as we know it is here. You can take these few books and that's all you're gonna be able to think about, read about and talk about other than practical realities of life for the rest of your time on earth. I would say, give me my Socrates, give me my Homer, give me my Shakespeare, give me my Eva Brand and send me home. And the home I'm in now and in the celestial city that we will all eventually join where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Nietzsche and Homer will all be waiting for us to have a great conversation about what it means to be human. Thank you, Winston, for your illuminating insights into Homer's Odyssey and much else beyond because the Odyssey speaks to life itself. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Join us at the same time on Thursday when my guest is our Cook Leadership Academy fellow, Riley Pearl. Riley will tell us what it's like to go to college while fighting cancer. Till Thursday at 1 p.m. Thanks for listening. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Howenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.